Thank, thank you, worship team. worship team. At this time, uh, children are dismissed. I finally have my chance now to get John back for all the times he turned me under the bus up here. He's not here to stop me. No, I, we want to continue to pray for John and Danielle. Um, a well-deserved break. We also want to um, just acknowledge what a good father that we have on Father's Day. Whether or not you've had a great father, an average father, a bad father, no father, doesn't change the fact that God gives us the standard of who a good father is. And so we, we, can, um, we can all appreciate that as, as his children, we have a good, good father. And I love that uh, you sang that song today. Um, the Holy Spirit definitely led that. Well, here's my opening statement for today. I'm just going to warn you, we're going to go through some rough terrain at the beginning, but we got to get through the rough terrain to get to where we're going. So the opening statement is this. From Adam and Eve all the way throughout history until even today, what we find from humanity is we find humans unwilling to seek God, unwilling to submit to God, and unwilling to trust God in their natural state. In their natural state. It's a theme that the Bible calls total depravity. And this is a theme that if you've been following along in our reading plan and you've been reading through Romans, this is a, a topic that is covered heavily in the book of Romans. This is my one Father's Day connection on the sermon right here. So this is all, this is, all, this is my, uh, the Spirit took it kind of in a, in a certain direction, but this is the, my, my one Father's Day thing for today. Fathers, this is how I feel sometimes. I never knew how sinful I was until I created a miniature version of myself and started arguing with it daily. If you want to know your flaws, number one, get married. Because you'll find out pretty quick. Number two, have kids. Because they will tell you when you're being a hypocrite. Paul sums up this human condition in Romans 3. You have that verse in Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who sees God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. It sounds a little bit impressive, right? A little discouraging. But it's the truth. It's the truth. From the beginning of time, look at the world that we live in. Look at the history of our world. From the beginning of time until today, we've earned death. I've earned death. Throughout history, God has continued to show grace. When we would have wiped humanity off the face, way back probably in the Old Testament, God has continued to show grace after grace after grace. He's continued to bear with his creation. And we see in his grace, part of, part of that is that he gives us the law. He gives us the law, Moses the law of God. He gives us his standard, right? This isn't his grace. This didn't have to show us. We're, we're wandering aimlessly through life. We don't know what good is. Ever since Adam and Eve, we can't decide what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. God gives us his law and his grace to show us. And a lot of people, some people today, think that those in the Old Testament, well, they were, they could be saved through the law. But we find that even the law of Moses and all of the rituals, all of the sacrifices and the entire priesthood and sacrificial system, it could not get to the root cause. What is the root cause of evil? The human heart. human heart. In fact, we find that it actually made things worse. Let's go Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And I want to focus on that last part, verse 20. Commentator J.B. Phillips paraphrases this verse by saying, writing, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. Sin and death, think about this. They personify sin and death. Sin and death actually took the law and used it to their advantage because it allows them guaranteed condemnation of the human race. Once God revealed his standard, okay, this is my standard, and sin and death, they know that we can't reach the standard on our own. So they, get, they are able to put humans in a stranglehold. Sin and death love the law because it shows us how sinful we are. It's kind of like when you tell someone, hey, don't look over here at this. What do you want to do? You want to look at it. Why? I, I've, I've wondered that about myself. Why do I want to do things that I'm told not to do? There's something inside of us. There's something in our nature, in our being, that wants to do things that we shouldn't do. 
David Guzik tells a story along these same lines of a waterfront hotel in Florida. They were concerned that people were going to be fishing off the balconies. So they put signs all over the place that said, no fishing from the balcony. And what do you think happened? They had constant problems with people fishing from the balconies. And they had like sinker weights that were flying around, breaking windows. It was a disaster. They solved the problem by just taking the signs down. They took all the signs down, and over time, people just didn't think to, to fish off the balconies anymore. Now, can we do that with the law? Should we remove the law? No. Why not? Because it still doesn't get to the root cause. We are after the root cause. Now, if you've ever, there's kind of this movement in the medical community right now where we want to try and get to the root cause of disease and, and, and illness. And I think that it's, it's a very good thing because I think that any time you can get to the root cause, that's what, you know, Band-Aid fixes, Band-Aid fixes, they, they, they're not, not going to last forever. They're not, they're worthless, really. How do we get to the root cause of the human heart? Reminds me of uh, Celebrate Recovery, step one. If you're familiar with Celebrate Recovery. We are powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors. Our lives have become unmanageable. Has your life ever been unmanageable? Have you ever got to a place where you felt like your life was unmanageable? Do you feel powerless to control the same negative patterns of attitude and action? When you think about it, there's really, we really have two issues that we have to address. There's two problems here. One, how do we pay the massive spiritual debt that we've accumulated through our life? Through sin. How do we pay for that? And number two, it goes hand in hand, but it's really a different, different question. It's how do we change the direction that we're going and truly please God so that we don't wind up all the way back where we were in the first place to begin with? Chapters 1 through 5 of Romans, again, if you've been following along, answers that first question. What we call the good news, right? The good news of the gospel. Jesus willingly died on the cross to take upon himself your debt and pay it in full. And Paul goes to great lengths to explain that Jesus made peace with God on your behalf. He did what you couldn't do. He did what I couldn't do. And that forgiveness is called grace. And that grace, the pathways to that grace, is faith, is belief, trust, trust. But if you are like me, you wrestle in the tension of the second question I just posed of how can we change? So we don't go back. How can my heart, how can my sinful heart change so I can live differently? I understand that Jesus paid my debt, and I'm so thankful for it. It's the joy, it's the, it's the joy of my life, right? The joy of my salvation. But sin still exists, and I'm still flawed. What is God's plan for this? How can we become the, the people, truly become the people that God created us to become? What has God done to help us to not repeat the same actions and attitudes that got us here in the first place? That's the question that we want to answer today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just pray that you would open our hearts to the word. I pray that you would open our lives to what the Holy Spirit wants to speak today. This is not, these are not my words, God, these are yours. I pray that people would see very little of me, that they would see all of you, Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit, through you, that you'd make this personal, make this message personal to each person in here. God, I pray that our hearts would be cut open by your word, and that there would not just be knowledge, not just be um, information, God, but that there would be action behind it. I just pray in Jesus' name. This is my first point. My first point. Your new life in Christ cannot begin until condemnation is removed. Until the condemnation of sin is removed. In other words, if there is still a part of us that consistently lives under condemnation, I'm not talking about conviction. I'm not talking about discipline or correction, which I would call conviction. I'm talking about condemnation. If there is still a part of us that consistently lives under that, that is a lie. I say this carefully by using the word consistently because we all have moments of temporary struggle. But there are some of us, maybe many of us today, who continue to view ourselves as condemned by God, unlovable. It's the biggest lie. It's the biggest lie Satan can tell us. God doesn't love you. He showed his love. We know that's a lie. And this is where I want to go to Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. How, what, how much condemnation? There's, there's no, it's not, it doesn't say less condemnation. It doesn't say Jesus, it doesn't say Jesus he 
thinks you're kind of okay now. He loves you a little bit. No, there's no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we really believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you really live like that? Do I really believe that? If you feel unworthy of his grace, that's okay. You are unworthy of his grace. Grace by its very nature, it circumvents any form of conditional works. You can't do anything to make God love you more than what he already has loved you as a sinner. Think about that. You cannot do anything more to make God love you more than he already has as, as, as a sinner. This is Romans 5. Let's go to Romans 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. No, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, just let this sink in. I mean, really. God is outside of time and space. He knows your life. He looks, I mean, he sees all of you. He knows past, present, future you. He sees all of that. And even at the pinnacle of your sin, while you were still sinning, in the act of being a sinner, in other words, he knows everything about you. He loved you and showed it by going to the cross. Did Jesus know that Peter was going to deny him? Yeah, he knew Peter was going to deny him. He went to the cross for Peter. Did Jesus know that the, all the things that the thief on the cross, I mean, the thief on the cross deserved to be up there. He's probably a good thing. Notorious criminal. Did he know everything about, yeah, he knew everything about him. He hung up there for that guy, too. Now, I'm not talking about a tolerant love that the world peddles around every corner. I'm talking about true, sacrificial, transformational, grace-motivated, this doesn't even make sense to me kind of love. This is God's love for you. No condemnation. And this should be transformational in our life. When we really understand that and how it makes no sense, what, what, what response can we have? It wasn't based on anything that I did, right? It wasn't based on anything that you did. And so the only thing we can do is worship, worship him. Lay down, bend the, lay down our life and say, if you were out in front of a railroad tracks and there's a train bearing down on you and you don't know it and someone comes and pushes you out of the way and they get hit by the train and they die, or you would say what? You want to honor this person. I don't want their death to be in vain. They, they, they thought enough of me to save my life and risk theirs and, and die for me. I'm going to honor them with my life. How do we do that? That's the question. That's the question. We're still sinners. We still wrestle. We still struggle. How do we honor Christ? What stops Jesus' sacrifice and the reality of no condemnation? What stops that from changing us, from, from being transformational in our lives? I thought of four ways that I, these are four struggles that I've had personally, and maybe you can relate to them. Number one, what stops it from being transformational? Pride. I feel like I need to earn it. I feel like I need to do something to deserve it. That's pride. Number two, sorrow. Some some people, some of us, people, I mean, I would throw myself in this at times. We have such a low view of ourselves. We feel like, Jesus, you shouldn't have done it for me. I'm not, I'm not worthy of that. That's a lie. Number three, fear. Now that Jesus has paid my sin and wiped the slate clean, there's so much pressure and responsibility to make sure that I honor him and live the right way. I'm just, I'm just afraid to, 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 to step out and live as he's called me to live. And number four, shame. I do believe, but I just, I struggle because... There's so much evidence that I'm unworthy because I still continue to wrestle with sin and I still continue to struggle. These are all things that can stop the transformational power, the transformational love from changing us. These are barriers. These are barriers. And so how do we navigate through these struggles? Again, what is, going back to my original question, what's God's plan to help us live as the people that he's called us to, to live? And, and how do we transition, I guess, from belief to joyfully, actively living in the new identity that Christ has, has made us in? I want to hold that thought for a moment. I was watching a nature documentary the other day, and, and I have to say, I think that symbiotic relationships in nature and God's creation are absolutely fascinating to me. I think they're so interesting to study. Um, 
God has made the entire universe, his creation, to, create, to function, to have these kind of systems and entities within it that are reliant upon or dependent upon other systems or entities in order to run and work. If you think about it, all of us are dependent. We all have needs that have to be met in certain ways. And when you look at the animal kingdom, you see these unlikely symbiotic relationships where you have two animals who are working together, living together, almost, in order to um, be as healthy as they can be, in order to be who they were created to be. So... First, uh, first relationship, symbiotic relationship here. Let's pull up that croc. There we go. All right. The Nile crocodile, obviously, you, I mean, aggressive, super aggressive, um, would not allow for an uninvited visitor to come near it, right? Come near its territory. However, there is one animal that is allowed into its domain, and this is the Egyptian plover, a.k.a. crocodile bird. Crocodile allows for this bird to uh, fly into its mouth and feed on the decomposing meat stuck between their teeth. If you call that a meal, I don't know. Eating, eating meat that someone else has chewed up, I don't know, but I guess that's, that's the meal for the, for the bird. But obviously the plover also you know, gets protection from the crocodile. Um, and, and the croc is this built-in dental hygienist. Let's go to the next one. The Colombian tarantula, and if you can see very, very tiny in front of it there, is... Um, uh, the South American frog, dotted humming frog of South America. So normally, this frog would be lunch for this tarantula. But in this relationship, the tarantula allows for the frog to um, enter its burrow because this particular frog has an appetite for um, um, carnivorous right, ants. So ants that are very that have a huge appetite for eggs, for the tarantula's eggs. So the frog takes care of the ants, which kind of protects the tarantula's eggs, and in return, the frog gets a personal bodyguard in the form of a giant hairy spider, which would be a great bodyguard for anyone, really. Even humans would love to have a giant spider bodyguard. And the third one we have here is, is also very interesting. It's, it's a shark. So many species of shark have established an alliance with pilotfish. I, didn't, I actually didn't know. I knew about the first two. I didn't know about this one. So pilotfish, they swim alongside these sharks, and they actually help in kind of the same way as the crocodile bird helps with the crocodile. They will help rid the shark of food caught between their teeth, but also they will eat parasites on the shark's body. And in return, obviously, the, the sharks get, again, a bodyguard, personal protection from one of the most feared predators in all the sea. What I learned this week is that this bond can be so strong between these two that there have been tales, stories uh, of the sea, which could be accurate, maybe maybe aren't accurate, but there's a lot of speculation that when a shark is captured by a ship, these uh, pilot fish actually will follow the ship for miles because they're so attached to that, that shark. Well, what does all of this have to do with what we're talking about today? What does this, all this have to do with our spiritual condition? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the helper that Jesus has sent to us. You know, symbiosis, it literally means the living together of two dissimilar organisms. And this is what Paul talks about when he talks about the flesh and the spirit living together. You have the flesh, which wants to gratify the flesh by pursuing the world. You have the spirit that wants to glorify God by following him. Those two things are living together right now inside of believers. Think about that. Now, we have the flesh and the spirit living together inside of our bodies. So these are the two dissimilar organisms that have to live together. Now, I understand this analogy is not a perfect one. It breaks down because in a symbiotic relationship, both organisms are reliant on, on each other. And obviously God is self-sufficient. That's the Bible teaches God does not need anything. He's self-sufficient. However, although God doesn't literally need us, the Bible does indicate that he derives great pleasure from using his children to accomplish his plans. So in this sense, there is a participation, there's a partnership, there's a relationship, a living together that God desires from his children, from his own people. 
So let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about who the Holy Spirit is. First and foremost, the Bible teaches us that the moment that we put our faith in the shed blood of Jesus, the moment that we profess faith genuinely in Jesus Christ, God sends his Holy Spirit as a down payment of his promise to us, and we become sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is kind of like, think about an engagement ring. An engagement ring is a seal. It's a down payment. It's a seal of, I intend to marry you, right? And I tend to be with you forever. That is what an engagement ring represents. God sending the Holy Spirit is like sending an engagement ring to his children. It's a guaranteed delivery of his promise. Now, the, the, the wedding reception, the, 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 I guess the ceremony, um, I don't want to... I don't want to say something theologically incorrect, but kind of some of those things that we're going to wait until the second coming to see, right? When Jesus returns. But you get, the, you get the picture. You get the understanding. It's a seal of the promise. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, a lot of people don't realize the Holy Spirit has a mind. The Holy Spirit thinks. He teaches. He searches hearts. He directs us by praying when we don't know what to say. Romans 8.27. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Holy Spirit we know has emotion. He can feel, he can be grieved. We can grieve the Spirit. He can perform miracles. He convinces. He restrains. He convicts. The Holy Spirit can be obeyed. He can be lied to, as in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. He can be resisted. He can be blasphemed. He can be insulted. He also gives us words. We talked about this in Sunday school. Brian talked about, he gives us words to say when we don't know what to say. And this is just scratching the surface. The Holy Spirit is the key to living in an intimate relationship with God. And this is the thing. If you're a believer today, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Is that something that you think about on a daily basis? Is that something you engage with on a daily basis? It's not, you know, some people think like, oh, the Holy Spirit is just like in the Old Testament. He just kind of comes at certain times. He does what he wants. No, he's here all the time. He's indwelling. He's here right now. In every aspect of the Christian life, think about everything that we do as Christians, everything that we're called to be as Christians. It all goes through the Holy Spirit. Scripture, understanding Scripture, prayer, discernment, decision-making, witnessing, wisdom, truth, worship, gifts, assurance of our salvation, growth. It's all under the influence of our Helper, the Holy Spirit, who God sent. I think, unfortunately, many today have promoted the Holy Spirit as just a means of personal advancement. It's all about me. It's all about what the Holy Spirit's going to give to me. Instead of the Holy Spirit leading us to what, to what God wants, what God wants, right? And I think that it's producing, unfortunately, a lot of frustrated, shallow Christians who want to engage with the Spirit, but they don't really understand what the Word of God says about them and who He really is. If we're going to boil it down to something concise, if we're just going to boil it down to a summary of who the Holy Spirit is in our life, He is the mediator for the presence of Jesus Christ. Christ ascended, and what did He say to His disciples? He's like, it's better for me to go. It's better for me. I've, I've often thought about this. Like, what if you could have Jesus here with you on earth, wherever you go, throughout your day, all the decisions you make, he's just your personal counselor. He's here in the flesh right next to you. He travels with you, goes home, goes to work with you, goes wherever. And, and you can talk to him. And you can ask him about, how, how do you think I should do, decide this? What direction do you think I should go with this? And he, he's right there to answer all your questions. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Jesus actually said, the Holy Spirit is going to be better for you than that. He was there with his disciples. And he says, I'm going away. It's going to be better for you once I send the Spirit. And my question is, if we would engage with Jesus that way as a person, in the flesh and with us, with us, why are we not engaging with the Spirit? Who's better? Inside. Inside. Look, look, salvation is not just a decision that we can add to our life. Like, where are we going to eat lunch today? Salvation, Jesus' desire for salvation is that through it, the Holy Spirit would permeate every aspect of who we are and who we're going to be. And if the Spirit, if it's true, that these two 
un, you know, the symbiotic relationship of these two organisms that are trying to live together. We're trying to, 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 to we're flesh, and we have these fleshy desires, and we have the spirit who's going to draw us to God, and these two things that are competing for our attention. They're, 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 we're trying to figure out how do these two things live together. If, if that's true, that they're opposed to each other, as Paul says, then it's a guarantee that if you're engaging with the spirit, the spirit is going to ask you to do things that are contrary to what you want to do. And I was con- convicted this week of that. Because a lot of my time is spent doing what I want to do. And I think, I think that I've, I've made decisions, and I've gone directions, and I've reacted in ways that are me instead of, instead of listening to God's Spirit and how He wants me to live and how He wants me to react. I need to reinvigorate. I'm saying this to you, me first. Because I'm challenging you, but I need to engage more with the Holy Spirit. My invitation is that through what I've said, that the Holy Spirit is putting on you, that you need to engage more with you too. And if we believe the Bible, if we trust in the Scriptures, that it says the Spirit of God lives in us, and if we believe what Scripture says, that our bodies are a temple that houses the Holy Spirit, the temple of God, the logic would follow that those that engage with the Spirit should look drastically different in this life than those who do not. Those who engage with the Spirit should look drastically different than those who do not. Lord, forgive us. Forgive me for not engaging with your Spirit. And you know, the tragedy, and again, I say this of myself, is that I would get to the end of my life and have regrets that I was too afraid of what the Holy Spirit would ask me to do that I didn't engage more with Him. Because it's going to be like this. I want to know the Spirit. I want to be led by the Spirit. I want to trust the Spirit. And I want the Spirit to change me from the inside out. I hope that that's your desire and your prayer today. I believe that if we seek Him and seek Him with our whole heart, that He will make our path straight. So my prayer for, for you all, and I close with this, let us be people who live confidently with the assurance of Christ's sacrifice, the joy of no condemnation, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Let us be people that, let's be people that believe that, so wholeheartedly, that we fearlessly surrender to where the Holy Spirit is leading and who he wants us to be in this life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your spirit. Forgive us, Lord, for the times where we react, for the times where we live, where we make decisions, where we glorify ourselves, instead of following your spirit. I pray that during this next song, this last song, God, that we would glorify you, that we would worship you, but also, God, that we would have a moment of just reconciling with you about how we engage with your help in the Holy Spirit and what changes need to be made in our life so that we can live in the fullness and the freedom of who you've called us to be through your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.